0: you're listening to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith. I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. In today's episode, we're discussing all things gut health and fibre. We'll start by talking to our special guest about their career before diving into today's topic, We'll talk about the latest research in the field of gut health, misconceptions around this topic, and practical tips for diversifying the microbiome for you and your patients. To discuss this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by none other than registered dietitian and gut health specialist, Dr. Megan Rossi. As many of you know, Megan is the author of two best selling books, Eat Yourself Healthy and Eat More, Live Well. She also has a weekly column in the Daily Mail and has published over 30 scientific papers to date. So without further ado, Megan, I'll hand over to you to tell us a bit more about yourself.
1: Thanks, Harriet. It's an absolute pleasure to be here to chat things, all things gut health. Um, so, yeah, a bit of background. I work as a research fellow at King's College in London, where essentially we look at all different types of nutrition interventions and how they impact our gut health, whether we have something like inflammatory bowel disease or actually are quite healthy and we just want to maximize things like our mental health, for example. So, absolutely love that re- research side of things. Um, but I also founded the Gut Health Clinic, where I have a team of brilliant gut specialist dietitians, and we see patients and clients one-on-one, which I absolutely uh, can't let go of because I find it so helpful to not only, you know, create new hypotheses for my research world, but also it just gives you that hand in clinical practice and understanding what are the fads going on, you know, what are the troubles people are experiencing. And then, of course, I have the gut health doctor, which is, um, yeah, where I'm trying to help educate the public about gut health.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much, Megan. And we're looking forward to delving into your background and career in a bit more detail in a moment. Just before we get stuck into that, we're going to start with our quickfire round of questions, so that our listeners can get to know you on a bit more of a personal level. So, my first question to you is: What is your go-to breakfast?
1: <laughs> Harry, I'm bit, I'm bit of a nerd, so I love my overnight fermented oats. Um, so it's like the good old, you know, overnight oats, but I add kefir or some live yogurt. And what that does is overnight allows those microbes to really ferment down um, the ingredients. And I have to put things like some carrot in there, obviously some uh, nuts and seeds and some dates along with the oats. And the microbes, I'm sure we'll talk more about how amazing they are, but they actually start to ferment them. And the flavor profile is, you know, so much further enhanced because of the work of those microbes overnight. So that is absolutely uh, my go-to breakfast. Sounds good. I'm sure I'll pick up a few tips as
0: we go yeah. along on this episode. <laughs> Second question What's your favorite way to spend a
1: Sunday? Ah, uh, I think. Historically, it was reading a new scientific paper um, with a nice um, Americano and kind of just sitting back and relaxing. But now as a mom, that kind of is not something I get much opportunity to do. Uh, so probably more realistic, it would be going for a walk um, with the family in the park or something like that.
0: Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Um, and final question, if you had a plane ticket and could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why?
1: It's a really tricky one um i think i mean i love italy so much i actually got married there because the food and the people is just absolutely incredible. I just love immersing myself in new cultures. Um, I never can understand. I probably most dietitians and nutritionists can relate where people go to foreign countries and then they go to like fast food joints. I'm just like, how can you do that? I love experiencing like, you know, the street food and like the really traditional places. So uh, yeah, probably Italy. I mean, I should expand my horizons more, but um, it just, it's just such a winner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can never have a bad meal, I think in Italy. So at the dietitian cafe, Megan, as you probably know, we love to hear about the journeys of our guests and how they've got to where they are today. So Megan, did you always know that you wanted to be a dietitian? And can you tell us a bit about this journey to get to your very multifaceted career that you've had to date?
1: Yeah, look, I actually, growing up, didn't know what a dietitian was. Um, So I grew up in Cairns, quite a, very, a small town. I actually grew up, you know, outside of Cairns, in fact, on a farm initially. And then obviously we went to school, moved more in. Um, So yeah, I didn't really have much insight to, to like all the different types of careers, you know, that were available, but my mum was a science teacher. So I think she instilled this inquisitive mindset in me quite early on. So it was always asking those annoying questions. Um, And then I grew up, you know, like I mentioned, on the farm and my heritage is Italian. Um, So the centre of the farm lived my nan and Nunu and they'd always bring the families together, like my cousins and everyone together via food. So I was always a huge foodie. And I think when I was in the final year at school, I kind of said, I love science. I love food. What should I do? Like, I didn't really know. And they said, dietetics. And I was like, what's that? I had to Google. I was like, actually, I think I could do that. So um, yeah, it was really, I think that chance that, you know, it's the ultimate career for anyone who loves food and science, I think. Um, And then in terms of, yeah, I I packed up, moved to Brisbane, which is a a slightly bigger uh city in Australia to do um my university degree when I was 17 and none of my friends um came with me so I was very very scared you know I was a country girl by heart still am um and yeah absolutely loved the course so it like drove me I was like wow well, this is incredible I'm learning so much um And then in terms, I guess, about gut health, it was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics um, when sadly I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And I was, you know, I absolutely hated the gut for putting it through the surgery, the chemo. And I was like really reflecting on our degree. And I was like, you know, we haven't, we obviously touched on bowel cancer and surgeries and stuff, but we didn't really delve too much into, you know, what was the underlying mechanisms and and why this was happening. And I was like, God, I just felt like hadn't been kind of completed. Um, And then I, you know, suppressed that sort of negative association, started working as a dietitian um, in a a tertiary hospital in Brisbane, uh, where I dealt with all different types of conditions, including chronic kidney disease. Um, But I was also really fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And I found it just incredible that despite people, you know, from very different backgrounds, like elite athletes to, you know, people in the hospital setting, they're, you know, all coming to me complaining of the gut. And I was like, God, this organ, it just won't leave me alone. Like, what is it about it? And that was 2010, I think. So there hadn't been a whole lot of gut health research really emerging. So it started to get a few rumbles and I thought, you know what, I owe it to my patients and to my grandma to find out more about this kind of Unknown organ, um, so that's when I, I signed away those my early twenties to doing a PhD in the area, so looking at whether um, we combined pre and probiotics, so symbiotics, uh, uh, whether that improved the health of not just things like our gut symptoms, but systemically, so things like mental health, um, kidney function, and yeah, it was really that that I guess changed my outlook on the gut in a, in a really dramatic way. I was like, actually, wow, so. It's not that the gut is a bad thing. It's just that we've misunderstood it and we didn't really understand how to look after it. And I thought, you know what, if I'm ever going to have my impact in the world, it's going to be via the gut because it's you know, a landmark scientific discovery. So where does that leave me? After the PhD, I was like, what what should I do? I never, really weird, maybe it's because I came from a small town, never had any ambition to go overseas um, or live overseas. It was just like a bit of a foreign kind of concept to me. But my supervisor of my PhD said, Go overseas for a year—a really great opportunity um, to kind of establish your research foundations. And being no longer, a, you know, PhD student, um, so I thought, okay, why not? Applied um, for a research uh, position at King's. Um, was really fortunate to get um, to get a job. That actually, I didn't get the job I applied for, which is quite an interesting one. Um, it was they, they said, "Look, we don't think you were the right for that," but actually we can open up this new one um, that I think you might be really soon. So I was like, okay, amazing. And yeah, it was just like the, the incredible opportunities in terms of research that kept me in the UK. Like I said, I was only coming, my contract, I think was only for a year. um, But we just got amazing research grants to explore kind of my dream hypotheses. I was like, I have to stay. Um, And yeah, so I, I, I absolutely love the research world, but I think, probably about a year after kind of being settled and being like, okay, I'm actually staying here for quite some time. I started to get a bit frustrated that despite all of the amazing research being done, it just wasn't being translated. So even though I was working um, full-time at King's, I also did a bit of private practice on the side again, because I just find it really helpful to maintain that clinical practice side as a dietitian um, to make sure my research is always really relevant. And I just saw so many of my patients and clients following the craziest diets because They'd heard and they got excited about gut health, but they went down kind of really fatty diets and got so confused and it was doing more harm than good. And I was like, the injustice was, was so frustrating. So as one does in the 21st century set on social media, um, thought, hey, look, if I get a few hundred followers, I'll be doing more of a service to like science communication than just kind of sitting away in, in the scientific world. And then, yeah, I think it was just really lucky timing. A lot of key names were kind of interested in gut health, like um, Davina McCall and, and Jamie Oliver, who I hadn't known. Like, you know, I saw them on TV, but they got excited about the concept. I think they were looking for kind of more of a credible voice to follow. And, yeah, the account really grew and opportunities came from there and we'll talk more about those
0: exciting opportunities in a moment. Um but just before we do, you mentioned that gut health has really started to excite, you know, the likes of Davina McCall and Jamie Oliver. But what exactly is it about gut
1: health that excites you, Megan? I think the key element is that it's so empowering for people because What we're discovering, you know, we've always known, we can't change our genetics. And I think a lot of people I used to see in clinical practice was like hypertension, diabetes, you know, it's genetic. I'm going to get it. Whereas what we're discovering is that, So much of our gut microbiome, which we now see can predict risk of cardiovascular and and diabetes and mental health, we're in control of by the way we treat these microorganisms. So I think that is what excites me is that it's we can take control of our health to so much extent now that we understand the mechanisms and the science behind the gut microbiome.
0: So we can take control of our health. And obviously with gut health, many dietitians listening will be aware of the importance of um, fiber intake, for example. But as you will know, across the UK, fiber intake is, is far below the recommended amount. So why do you think this is and what can we as dietitians do about that to address it
1: when it's so important for good gut health? Yeah, look, it's a it's a real um concern, really, isn't it, in terms of how little fiber we have. Like the government guidelines say the 30 grams, we get less than 20 grams. Yet yeah, some of the amazing clinical trials, like the SMILES trial, many dietitians will be familiar with. If you haven't checked that one out by Felice Jacker's group, really fascinating for dietitians in terms of how gut-boosting, high fiber, plant diverse diet can actually improve things like our mental health. It's really a fantastic design. Um, so you know we're seeing that in that study, they actually gave 50 grams of fiber a day. So we see that, you know, we know fiber essentially is fertilizer for our gut bacteria. So it is concerning to see that, you know, we have such low levels. And I think it's so important that as dietitians, we really do help translate that message. And I think we need to translate it in a slightly sexier and more appealing and tastier way. I think when people think fiber, they're like, uh, boring, gross plant food, right? They don't realize that actually fiber, you know, comes from what I call the super six. So six different plant-based food groups. you got your whole grains, your legumes, uh, your nuts and your seeds, your herbs and your spices, your fruit, your veg, and there's so much flavor and diversity across that. And I, I think as dietitians, we need to kind of upsell the flavor of high fiber foods. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it's, it's, kind of what can be exciting, actually, where, you know, we're at such a low level. We've got so many gains um, we can take. So, Hopefully people and dietitians, you know, feel empowered that we can make such a big difference um, because currently it is quite quite low. And another study I think can be quite helpful to translate to the general public is uh, one, I think it was published in the Lancet in 2019, and it was an amazing systematic review, including like, you know, hundreds of thousands of data points. And they showed for every 8 grams increase in fiber a day, we could increase um, or we could decrease our risk of heart disease by 19%, our risk of type 2 diabetes by 15%, and colon cancer by 8%. And that's just 8 grams. And, you know, obviously when we're talking to the public, we need to explain, well, actually 8 grams is just like a cup of beans and like some veggie sticks and some whole grain crackers and stuff like that. Really like doable, but you just need to get that extra in each day. And I think translating it in those really tangible terms as well as tasty food uh, is probably the key uh, to hopefully getting that message out further.
0: Yeah. And obviously with your social media and your books, you're doing a great job of helping to make that information more accessible. Now, another role that a lot of us play as dietitians is um, debunking misconceptions and myths that are out there about gut health, for example. And I know you mentioned earlier, you continue to practice clinically with patients and actually were quite inspired and motivated by hearing stories of your patients following fad diets or um, hearing myths and misconceptions about gut health. So can you tell, us, what are some of the biggest myths, fads, misconceptions that you come across day to day
1: in relation to gut health? Oh, that, I mean, how much time do we have? There are, there are so many. I think one is um, that you have to have a restrictive diet to have good gut health. And, and we see that's just not true at all. It's actually more important about what you're including. We need that plant diversity in our diet to have that maximum health benefits. Uh, the other one is about fiber. I think, you know, a lot of people are hearing this word. they know it's important. They think, oh, look, I'm just going to supplement with like a fiber. And they don't get that actually there's close to 100 different types of fiber. And each different fiber does different things. And that's where this whole concept of plant-based diversity comes to the forefront. Why it's absolutely crucial because each different type of plant contains a different array of, I guess, not just the fibers, but these polyphenols, um, which we know are absolutely crucial for feeding our gut microbiota. So I think... You know, there's misconception that, hey, I can just get all my fiber from a supplement or I can cut out all my plant-based or most of my plant-based food groups, like legumes and whole grains, and just get all my fiber from veg and that'll be fine. I'm like, actually, no, science shows that actually re- reduces down the gut microbiome diversity. So I think that's another myth out there. Probiotics, I think this concept of one size fits all um, is blows my mind that that's still kind of very prevalent. And I think um, we need to be very aware that each different type of probiotic does different things. Um, So there's no such thing as a probiotic that everyone should have on a daily basis or one probiotic that, you know, cures everything. So as dietitians, I think we need to be really savvy with some of these companies that really push this marketing um, kind of ploy that, you know, one type is is good for everything. That really (laughs) frustrates me. Um, uh, what's other kind of misconceptions out there? God that, yeah, there really are, are so many out there, which is why, again, I think it's so important that as dietitians we really move forward and, you know, come, come to the forefront of, of public education and share kind of the science around the gut microbiome. Oh, probably another one is gut microbiome testing. Um, so we, I do see a lot of patients in clinic and clients where they've spent so much money on these microbiome tests um, and they're like, okay, great, read me the results. And I'm like, look, these tests just aren't enough to change my clinical judgment at the moment. So they're, they're quite interesting, but it's really just a snapshot. They're still like, you know, 30% of the microbes that live in our body, we don't have a name for, we don't know what they're doing, let alone the fact that these tests typically just focus on the bacterial component don't include the virome, which is the virus component, or the microbiome, which is the the fungal component, which actually synergistically work with the bacterial component. So it's actually super complex. And so these tests on the market, the commercial tests, even ones which are backed by scientists, they just aren't valid at the moment, maybe in five or so years. But at the moment, people should save their money, spend it on deliciously diverse plant-based foods. Interesting. So it's a case of watch your
0: space and um, moving on to the topic of diverse foods, as you mentioned, um, many of our listeners will probably be aware of research showing that the gut microbiome is um, more diverse in people who ate over 30 different types of plant foods per week than those who ate 10 or fewer. Now, do you have any practical tips as to how dietitians can go about helping their patients to achieve these 30 different plant foods in a week? Because I guess it could sound quite overwhelming to someone who maybe isn't used to
1: eating those sorts of foods. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, the education part is really key to highlight. That doesn't actually mean they need to buy 30 different types of ingredients because, again, that can be quite expensive, right? Um, you know, it's things like instead of buying the single seed pack, you get the seed multi-pack. Instead of just buying one type of legume, you get the three bean mix. Um, so just having people think in their head, you know, variety wherever they can because each different type of plant actually gets a new plant point. Um, and, yeah, the, the work from um, Knight's group was absolutely fundamental in, I guess, our understanding of of why kind of plants are so important. But the other important thing I think that group did is highlighted that it's not plants only. You know, we, we don't need to go excluding all these other foods because um, they actually compared vegans versus omnivores and found that, didn't matter which group people fell into in terms of their gut health. The key predictor was that plant diversity.
0: And I found it really interesting when you spoke earlier about herbs and spices also counting within those 30 plant foods. I think that's a really easy one to forget.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's kind of um, a lot of people ask me about this plant point system that I often use. And I essentially made that up based on the research. Um, so it has been something that, you know, looking at kind of the questionnaires and everything they used, as well as my clinical experience, um, I've kind of come up with that plant point system where actually the herbs and spices, I only give a quarter of a point. <laughs> so you can't go and have like 30 herbs and spices and be like, okay, I've done all my plants for the week. And that's just because the volume we have of them um, is quite small, as well as the fact that they produce or they contribute phytochemicals, but not necessarily fiber because we have such small volumes of it. So that's just a bit of a side note there.
0: <laughs> and, and on that point, actually, is there any difference between dried herbs and fresh herbs, do you know, or, or does it not make
1: a difference? Yeah. So in terms of, you know, the, the point system that I use, I, Make them equal, except for the fact that if you're having like a whole big handful of basil or um you know another fresh herb where it's actually such a large volume, like at least 15 grams, where actually it's providing a decent amount of fiber, then you can have an extra point for that versus it being a quarter of a point. Um, so in terms of volume, there you'd kind of appreciate actually that give that's giving like a decent amount of fiber, so it can count as a whole plant. I see. We'll hold off on the pot of oregano then. Yeah. <laughs> So we often talk about encouraging
0: people to eat more diverse plant foods and adding fiber into the diet, but are there any groups of people that you would be cautious about when recommending increases in fiber intake to?
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question. And we know that people with these functional gut disorders like IBS and functional bloating have more sensitive intestinal tracts in terms of their enteric nervous system that innervates the gut is kind of more like on fire, a little bit more tingly. Um, So for them, if you just say, hey, go eat loads of fiber, it's going to trigger symptoms because our microbiome produces the gas and the short-chain fatty acids, which if you've got that sensitive enteric nervous system kind of filtering into your gut that can create um, symptoms. But absolutely, people who have these functional gut disorders can still achieve their 30-plus plants a week. They can still get that brilliant diversity of plants. They just need to be a little bit careful about the types, the combinations, and the dosing, uh, which, you know, essentially comes forward the role of, of, of dietitians, where we can educate around, okay, well, you know, these ones might have more uh, prebiotic type fibres and, and therefore they're more fermented more rapidly and therefore actually you should train your gut over two months to slowly start to tolerate them more. Um, whereas these types of fibres actually you can start having half a cup straight up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess that reiterates the uh, importance of seeing a dietician if you have got a specialist condition um, requiring that input. So going back to the evidence base behind gut health and fiber intake, can you talk us through what you consider to be one of the most groundbreaking findings in recent years? And why does that research excite you so much?
1: Yeah, you know what, I think um, one of the One of the things that I do find really fascinating is this synergistic relationship between the different types of microorganisms. So I think historically we were so fixated on the bacterial component and we didn't realize about the viruses, um, the fungi, and even some beneficial parasites that actually synergistically work together and look after us. So For me, I think this is the most exciting part because there's still so many research questions unanswered that the bacteria on their own haven't been able to explain, Uh, whereas I think these networking studies where they're actually looking at the different microorganisms and how they communicate with each other and work together, I think that's starting to open up new understandings um, kind of of some of those gaps. I think before it was kind of very much like primitive, whereas we're getting now into the nitty-gritty and going, wow, okay, you know, there's these other ones which do different functions. For example, um, in people with inflammatory bowel disease, some of the research is suggesting that they actually may be missing some protective parasites, and that's put them at greater risk of inflammatory bowel disease. Whereas, you know, historically we were like you know parasites are always really bad and we need to get rid of them straight away um and i think you know that has opened up the understanding of things like fecal microbial transplants um which again we you know we know that has been used in in um large scale hospitals for for many many years for treating um, um antibiotic resistant c. difficile infections um but now that that is like really quite Founded, we're now looking at how that could work in things like inflammatory bowel disease. Specifically, ulcerative colitis has probably shown the most benefit to date. So, I think understanding this synergy between all the microorganisms is really opening doors for new therapies. That's really interesting because, like you say, we often fixate on the bacteria and forget
0: about these other microorganisms. Um, what do you think the future holds for gut health in terms of you know
1: what we've got coming up in
0: the next few years?
1: Yeah, I, I think it will be around kind of personalised nutrition. Um, I think we'll start to understand that people with different types of microbiome profiles are reacting to different interventions in different ways. And um, we're starting to look at that um, in particularly in cancer therapies, and it's really really interesting in terms of how the microbiome can predict how people are going to respond to different types of cancer therapies, as well as augmenting the gut microbiome and that doing that before a certain therapy can increase people's response uh, to certain therapies. So, yeah, I think this, you know, personalized appreciating everyone's profile is different and how to kind of target that to predict response to different therapies is kind of the future. And yeah, it's incredibly exciting.
0: Yeah, definitely. So moving away from this one size fits all approach, like you said earlier. Um, so going back to fiber, um, we talked earlier about how in the UK, most people are not eating enough fiber. Do you think there should be more focus on fiber in public health dietary advice? And do you have any thoughts about how they could go about achieving this?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, yeah, a lot of people know The word fiber, but I think how it's communicated probably could be done more effectively, uh, and and kind of that translation to really simple and practical strategies, but also really tasty strategies, um, that I think is more likely to engage people into wanting to make, you know, these changes, and I think you know bringing fiber or positioned as fuel for your gut bacteria, again, probably brings more excitement to the concept of eating more fiber because I I think like every, everyone, you know, no matter their, their background has heard that word fiber. So that's like, you know, a good thing, you know, it's not like it's completely, they've never heard of the word before, but it's now just like adding in that practical application. So for that, yeah, making really simple, practical and tasty strategies, I think is probably, the key and, and definitely important to be done.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, you, you mentioned um, the definition of fiber. I think even amongst dietitians, there's confusion. You know, the terminology has changed so much in recent years, hasn't it? Soluble fiber, insoluble fiber. Don't use those terms. Um, would, would you agree there's quite a lot of confusion within the industry about those terms?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, UK was a little bit slow to kind of expand the, the definition of dietary fibre. So it used to be just the non-starch um, polysaccharides, right? And and was it 2015 that changed um, to kind of broaden up, include, you know, more of like the prebiotics, or resistant starches, and really broaden up, I guess, the category of fibre. So it is probably very new for a lot of um, uh, dietitians who, you know, when they got taught in university, the kind of understanding fiber was very different to what it is now so absolutely and you know the understanding of you know um insoluble versus soluble fiber and how actually i think it was 2007 um the food and agricultural association actually discouraged us all the way back then from using the soluble versus insoluble kind of definition and i think it's really important as dietitians that we understand the rationale for that because i know when we're trying to explain to patients we think that's helpful but If you think about psyllium husk and um, inulin, um, so psyllium husk and inulin are both types of soluble fiber. Yeah, if you ever play around in the kitchen with psyllium husk, it forms this like thick glue, um, whereas the inulin will dissolve in water straight away, have a little bit of a sweet profile and flavour, um, and they both act so so different in the gut. They both do very different things in terms of disease risk and cholesterol. They have like opposite effects. Um, so actually, it is really important we start to use the name and the source of the fibre versus thinking that soluble or insoluble is kind of enough uh, to help help our patients.
0: Yeah, interesting. It's perhaps an overly simplistic view of fiber. Um, So moving on to something that's probably at the forefront of a lot of dietitians' minds at the moment, HFSS guidelines, high fat sugar salt. Do you think that these new guidelines will play a role in encouraging the food industry to incorporate perhaps more fiber or indeed diverse ingredients into their products to improve the health profile?
1: Yeah, look, I've already seen some really great changes that have, have potentially stemmed from that regulation. In fact, a lot of um, the big guys, I take my hat off to them in terms of they've self-regulated. They've kind of self-imposed before it kind of has come out. Um, and, yeah, I, I have absolutely seen kind of changes and reductions in salt um, and the types of fat uh, as well as this focus on increasing fibre. Um, but what I would say is probably the, the HFSS um, regulations don't necessarily necessarily encourage the concept of the plant diversity and the fiber diversity. Um, So I think that's probably an area where they could have improved on um, because, you know, I don't want it to be a case of companies literally just adding in a load of a fiber supplement and being like, tick, like it is really important that people and companies are including this plant diversity in Because like we said, the different ingredients actually contain the different types of phytochemicals um, versus just having one type of fiber. If you add a different plant in, you're going to get at least like eight fibers plus all these phytochemicals. So, yeah, I think it has done a lot of good. And I know that, um, you know, not everyone is pro it, um, but I think it has made, has, you know, forced some companies who perhaps wouldn't have historically um, to start considering the nutrition profile of, of their foods.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I imagine in the next few months and years, we'll see further innovation um, amongst these big players, like you said. So it's definitely an interesting one to keep our eye on. And finally, coming to the end of this episode, I'd love to round off by asking you about which gut health topic you'd like to see more research conducted into in the future.
1: Yeah, I um I really think the whole area of the gut-brain axis is incredibly fascinating, um, and we know that one in four people every year have a mental health event, so it, it affects so many people. And I, I mentioned before about the SMILES trial, how they showed that following this very um, plant-diverse, high-fibre, Mediterranean-style gut-boosting diet had significant improvements in people who had um, moderate to severe depression. Uh, so I think understanding more about this gut-brain connection and, and how we can really tap into that um, specifically through diet uh, is, is incredibly exciting.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sure you will have inspired many of our listeners today to perhaps go off and encourage their patients to um, look into the gut brain axis, diversify their diets, and indeed, try and incorporate more plant foods into their diet. I'd like to say a huge thank you, Megan, for joining us on the podcast today and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us today.
1: So thank you very much. No, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And I think as dietitians, we're in such a powerful position to really empower others um, with this new science because it very much is a new science and getting people excited about it
0: definitely definitely and a huge thank you as well to new Ultra for making this podcast possible if you've enjoyed listening to this episode today please do consider subscribing and leaving a review or five star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals you can follow new Ultra at, on social media at new Ultra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon